0: What's better than one, John? Here's Johnny. Hmm. Nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is
1: Kanzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. Welcome to an all-new edition of Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast. I'm John Kanzano. You can read me at johnkanzano.com. Get a free subscription, get a paid subscription. Uh, You know the drill. Uh, Whatever works for you works for me. I'm here with John Wilner, my co-host on this podcast. Wilner, how do they find you? Bay Area News Group is the mothership, Pac12Hotline.com,
0: and we're available at media outlets across the conference. And we've got a little bit of a special edition here, right? Before Christmas, I think it was maybe two weeks before Christmas, we did an edition uh, of the podcast where we just fielded questions from from our faithful listeners, and we're going to do that again here uh we and we got a lot we got dozens and dozens of questions and we're going to try to get through as many as we can here so some i think we're gonna maybe take in rapid fire fashion and then some of us we should probably weigh in in a little bit more depth don't you think
1: yeah and i love it we'll just kind of do it very conversational i I think that's the way to go and you know i'll let you go we kind of separated the questions into four categories but i'll let you start you go ahead and fire off the first listener question yeah well i'm going to start at the very top okay uh the question is Basically who's
0: in charge of the PAC 12 is George Klinkoff in charge or the presidents. How does that work? So I can, you want me to take this one? Yeah, go ahead. You start. So, you know, Klinkoff works for the presidents. That is they are ultimately in charge of the conference, the, the 12 presidents and on current issues, it's 12 of them on future issues starting in the summer of 2024 when USC and UCLA are out of the league there are 10, um, but within the the PAC-12 board, right, there is a hierarchy, and this is really important, and it probably doesn't get written about enough or talked about enough. There is something called the Executive Committee, which is a three-person committee. It, they rotate every two years. Uh, currently, Washington's Anna Marie is the chair. She's joined by Stanford President Mark Tessier-Levine washington state president kirk schultz they are the three-person executive committee that basically sets the agenda and the direction right they they kind of work as a funnel between the broader group and the commissioner and his executive staff and i think they have a lot of influence right it, it technically everybody's got one vote but really that three-person panel is is set in the direction of the conference
1: yeah and look klyovkov is the commissioner he's got some discretion day-to-day on decisions that you know he can make on a different but he's taking his overall direction from his bosses and larry scott a little sideways with this you know with that part of the job because you know we can blame klyovkov we can blame larry scott but ultimately Big decisions like do they vote yay or nay on the media rights deal? Uh, Are, you know, UCLA and USC leaving the conference, not leaving the conference? Those are decisions that are made with presidents and chancellors. But day to day stuff or maybe proposals to the board are often things that Klyovkov and his staff will explore. So I think um, there's a blend there of, you know, middle management, upper management, and uh, ultimately it's a little bit like ownership in the nba or nfl where you have team owners sitting on a board of governors uh so to speak making league decisions making you know decisions from twenty thousand feet um yep and and it's also that three-person executive committee you know
0: is is based on seniority so they're rolling on and off every two years and the next up is is based on seniority and i would say Uh, The conference is probably pretty fortunate that it worked out that it's going through this crisis and Washington State's Kirk Schultz is on that executive committee because from what I've seen, he has by far the best handle of any president on the issues. He was a a big 12 uh, president at Kansas State. He is the Pac-12's representative on the college football playoff committee uh, managers, the management committee. Sorry, the Board of Managers, he has a very good grip on what's going on nationally with regard to college football. And the fact that he is also on the executive committee, I think, has uh, been very good timing for the conference.
1: Also on that executive committee, I had an insider tell me that, you know, I was talking in in context of the TV deal, the media rights, you know, uh, is it possible that the executive committee is going to bring a TV deal to the larger group and then have it voted down? I was told, no, that's not really how it works. Um, no, you know, like you won't imagine that any one of those three individuals is going to put a, D, a TV deal to a vote if they believe they're going to vote against it, or if anybody is going to vote against it. So there is a lot of discussion. And then keep in mind, these are academics in the world of academia. They love uh, unanimous, right? They they would love it to be a ten zero vote, and that's how they'll present it. So by the time a media rights deal comes up to vote. That three-person committee uh, is likely to have vetted the the deal, and they have discussed it a whole bunch. And the vote itself is really a formality. It's not like it's you know the uh, the judges in in the original Superman movie going guilty or not guilty. Like there's not a yay or nay. This isn't the Roman Coliseum. So this is very much like the decisions that academics make on their campuses, and it makes sense because these are academics. Um yeah. Let's move go. To qu- you go. Question 2. Why doesn't anything matter on a college campus as much as football matters? John Wilner, answer that one. That one I think is pretty pretty easy, right? You don't see 30,
0: 40, 50,000 people gathering for a poetry reading at the library, right? Or watching somebody look through a microscope in the chemistry department. It's nothing. There's no equivalent to football in terms of rallying the campus community, alumni, uh, all that. And it's a great, uh, not only source of pride, but, you know, way to raise money. There is there is no equivalent in college life.
1: Yeah, and I was looking at some of the financial reports for some of the u- universities, and it's there in black and white. I mean, football is the chief revenue generator. It's the thing you spend the most on because of that. And uh, you can see within most of the, Pac-12 university athletic departments that they're not willing to spend more than they're making in the non-revenue generating sports. But in football, you know, there's been this big emphasis placed on investment in football because that they know that they can reap the biggest rewards in football. Uh, moving on. Question three. Go ahead, Wilner.
0: Uh, with the Pac-12 assured a minimum of one school in the playoff, once the playoff expands in 2024, what can the presidents and commissioner do to increase the chances of getting a second and or third team into the playoff. Good question because that is is certainly going to be an important piece of uh revenue uh and other
1: aspects getting two teams in every few every few years. What do you think? Well, I think they've got to have a strategic plan when it comes to scheduling, non-conference scheduling. You know, do you need to play tough non-conference games? Do you need to does Oregon need to play Georgia? Uh, so to speak, in a in a week zero game, does that hurt you or help you? I think they need analytics and data help on that front, and they need to think like the selection committee. And you know, granted, they've got some individuals in athletic departments in the Pac-12 that have served on that selection committee. Rob Mullins was the chair of it just a couple of years ago, so you know how that committee thinks. Even as they expand to 12, what they're going to be looking for in at-large teams. Are they going to value strength of schedule are they going to look at your overall conference record do you you know do you just want to be do you just want to have as many undefeated and one lost teams as you can possibly have and that's how you're going to fill those spots but i think scheduling in the non-conference is going to be a really important question out of the gates it will and the other thing i'd add is the presidents have got to be willing
0: to invest in football and we're seeing that right i mean sc kind of started it with the Lincoln-Riley hire, and we're seeing how that's paid off, right? But Washington seems to be ending up. Uh, Colorado, obviously, great example uh, of what, what uh, you know, an elite head coach can do for recruiting and for attention to your program. So a lot of it is based, you know, the conference office can only do so much. A lot of it is, you know, what happens on campus, and that starts with the presidents
1: and the budget question. Next question comes from a listener who wants to know, what's the best press box spread in the Pac-12 or overall atmosphere in the Pac-12 conference? I'll go first on this one. Like immediately what came to mind is there are some beautiful settings in this conference. Uh, I think uh, being at Autzen Stadium and looking out in the fall at the leaves in the distance of the, on the trees and how they've changed colors is beautiful. I love Folsom Field in Colorado, how it's sort of nestled in there and a night game at Folsom Field in Colorado has got a just a glow about it and of course you talk about Husky Stadium and you can see uh, you know the the view of the water from the press box and and whatnot but uh, I also like Utah like uh, in Utah Stadium not only do you have this great view at Rice Eccles Stadium into the stadium and a great atmosphere but you look out the back of the stadium and it's just a stunning view of the mountains and the surrounding area but I think this conference, like I covered the Big Ten, I, I've lived in the ACC territory, and I've been, you know, to a lot of college football stadiums. And I think the Pac-12 has got some really cool atmospheres. And I think you can make a case for Tucson sunset, uh, looking out over the desert, the back of the press box. You could, uh, you know, obviously talk about, uh, you know, the LA schools uh, while they're still in this conference. The Rose Bowl and the Coliseum just got a lot of history to them but i just love you know the differences in the in the stadiums as well even when i go to berkeley and i see a game at cal strawberry hill and sort of uh, you know how that stadium fits in the surrounding neighborhood and i have you know the eucalyptus grove around stanford stadium i mean this is a difficult one for me i'm not as into the spread as i am into when i walk up into the stadium what is the atmosphere like uh what are the fans like and you know just sort of the feel of the stadium and so I'll take Autzen Stadium at Oregon, I'll take Husky Stadium, I'll take Rice-Eccles Stadium. I'm eager to see what Reeser Stadium at Oregon State looks like, but I'll start with those plus Folsom Field for a night game at Colorado.
0: Yeah, no, they're all those are all great. And let's actually you mentioned the Reeser Stadium renovation and we have a question about that. Uh, I was going to get to it later, but let's let's dig in and I'll let you answer. Uh do you think the Beavers are regretting lowering the capacity of Reeser Stadium, um, you know, especially now, given what's what the the trajectory of the program
1: right now, you do you think that they wish they could sell more tickets? No, I think, you know, we're watching baseball stadiums, Major League Baseball stadiums across the country as they're being built, built smaller. Even the stadiums they built in New York, they're like 40 something thousand seat stadiums, Yankee Stadium. And, you know, they're talking about 30,000 seats. Uh, for the new Tropicana Field for the Tampa Bay Rays, like you know, there was already an attendance crest when you know wh- before the pandemic hit, and so I think what Oregon State is doing is I think they're moving in the right direction with you know sort of uh, talking about you know we're we're talking about a stadium that's going to sit somewhere in capacity between 34 and 39,000, um, but they're going premium seating, club level seating. They're they're getting high dollars for those seats. I have seen the season ticket prices on that west side, and it is a significant step up. So I think the revenue is going to be there, and I think they're looking at fewer people in the stadium, you know, charging more for them, and I think they're really invested in making the experience feel special. But, you know, uh, Autzen Stadium holds 54000 and I think we're going to see some of these— Stadiums maybe look at maybe reducing capacity and putting in more club seating and more premium seating because they know they can charge for it. Yep, makes perfect sense. Who are the top
0: few athletic directors in the conference? Why don't athletic directors leave for other leagues if the Pac 12 is so bad? You go on that one. Well, take the second question first. You know, athletic directors have a little bit different view of. Uh, of their job and th- their role on campus than coaches, right? Coaches are often, you know, chasing the next paycheck, chasing more victories, chasing bowl games, all that kind of thing. ADs have, I think, you know, a longer view of things. And certainly, uh, you know, family considerations are a big one, but they're not necessarily out on the front lines a lot, right? So it's not, it's pressure, but it's more pressure from internal. They're not getting the heat. Unless things go real bad, they're not getting heat from fans. So I think that they also are are less likely to, to skip around for that reason. But in terms of the top few ADs, you know, it's hard. I don't I don't like to rank the coaches. I don't like to rank the ADs because every job is so different. I mean, it you can't really compare Washington State's A D position and USC's AD position, right? Or Oregon's and Arizona's, because the jobs are so different, the campus dynamics are so different, the economic resources are so different. To me, you know, you look at it like first the role of an AD, probably number one is you make sure your football program is is going good, right? You got to make a good hire there. And if you make a bad hire, you got to clean it up. Basketball is is secondary except at Arizona and UCLA. And then it's things like, you know, just raising money, making sure your the budget's working, uh, and supporting your coaches as best possible. So in terms of who are the best, you know, I, I would certainly say you look at it from the fan standpoint. What fan bases are happy right now and what fan bases are upset right now? And I think you can make a case – that with football, a lot of fans are excited about the direction that their schools are going. And from that perspective, I think you know most of the ADs are probably sitting pretty well. There's two in the Bay Area, two schools that are not very happy right now, I would say. And those ADs happen to have very difficult jobs with external factors that are dictating what their athletic departments can have to deal with right now. But I mean, if you're if you're thinking which fan base is going to be upset with the state of things and therefore upset with the athletic director, I don't know. Most of them would seem pretty happy, don't you think?
1: Yeah. And I think one of the other things that I thought of as you were there was, you know, in the Larry Scott era of Pac-12 football, the A.D.'s felt like outliers. They were not involved in decisions. They asked to see, you know, the conference budget. And, you know, the commissioner said, that's not for your eyes. That's only for the uh, presidents and chancellors. I mean. They felt like outsiders. I think currently this group right now feels much more included, feels like they have a voice in the room. I know at the recent uh, meetings at Arizona State when the presidents and chancellors were meeting, the ADs joined via Zoom for part of the meeting and I think they have felt more than they did in the past. And I also think they're doing more ambitious things and I think they came out of the pandemic facing challenges they'd never imagined. So I'm kind of watching them and It's really interesting because a lot of times I think fans look at the athletic director and say, oh, they're being too conservative. They're, you know, they're to lose. I actually think this group of ADs right now in the conference is being really ambitious and forward thinking and taking some big swings and trying to do some new things. Next up on the question, will the state legislatures in Washington and or Oregon pass a law that will keep their schools together to sort of curb future expansion talks. Wilner, go. You should probably take this. You, you, you're no. pi- you're plugged
0: okay. in with the Oregon situation. Yeah. You should take this.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of concern, uh, both in Washington and Oregon. I've talked to lawmakers in both states who say that you know they want the schools to stick together, and I understand why. They don't want Washington State to get left behind if Washington's leaving to go somewhere. Uh, Oregon State, the lawmakers in Oregon do not want Oregon State to get left behind. I don't think that's going to happen anyway, but I will not be surprised if both State uh, agencies step up and go, hey, we're going to create a law that, that requires you guys to stay together, and you're arm in arm. But I think the expansion of the college football probably shut down any real possibility in this next cycle that either are going to leave. And I do think that there is some support within the state capitals in both states to to marry these schools together in a way that goes, hey, if Oregon goes or Washington goes— Guess what? The state, the other school goes with them. And I would also say you
0: can't necessarily separate what might happen in Oregon and Washington with what did happen in California. Right. And UCLA is moving on. The Regents didn't didn't block that move. That could have an impact because we've seen the last couple of years, Washington and Oregon tend to follow California's lead on a lot of stuff. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any impact from the UC Regents
1: on what happens in the northwest. (laughs) What are the current opportunities and challenges facing the conference in the next 11 months? What's what's top of mind, Wilner? Well, and, you know, if we we're going to get to media rights. So uh, other other than media rights, put
0: it that way, uh, you know, other than uh, other than the play. Now, well, let me start over. Other than media rights. I think the big thing is is another successful football season building on what just happened. And ideally for the conference, right. You get a team in the playoff and it's not USC or UCLA, right. Cause there's going to be more focus on the fact that the LA schools are leaving next fall. Cause it'll be their last, their last season. Uh, you know, I think if, if, if Washington, Oregon, Utah, you know, one of those teams gets into the playoff uh, two of those teams are in the top 10, that's, is going to be the mark of a real successful season an ideal season for the conference. You know, I don't think they would, they would be, uh, you know, rooting against USC, you know, to make the playoff. Uh, but if, if they had their choice, they would certainly rather be somebody else. So to me, that is the biggest thing, getting a team in the playoff. It's, it's really the next step after, after what was a, a real, you know, impressive football season.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, we we can talk media rights, expansion. Those are huge things that are on the horizon, but, and what to do with the PAC 12 networks, obviously, but yeah, the competition on the field, how do you take the next step forward? This football season is lining up like it's going to be great, but I also don't want to see the conference cannibalize itself. So I think that is huge. Uh, shifting gears, go ahead. We're moving into kind of the world of media rights. Go ahead, Wilner. Okay. First media rights question. When will the media rights and expansion deals be done? Is it
0: possible the PAC-12 will call itself the PAC-10 again? Will it add schools? And also, at what point would it be time to start worrying if there's no media deal in place? Uh, all i right. right. I'll, I'll jump in first here. Uh, first, you know, I don't know what the name situation, they may just keep the pac 12, even if there are only 10 schools, because for branding purposes, I mean, the, you know, the big 12 has been at 10 and now it's going to be at 14 and it's still being called the big 12 big 10 is obviously going to have 16 teams. You just, you want your name to be what, what people identify with. And I think that there's a lot of marketing, uh, benefits to just sticking with, with pac 12, Uh, You want to jump in first here with the timeline of of when this thing needs to be done?
1: Yeah, but I mean, here I am. You know, I have said, hey, by Thanksgiving, hey, by Christmas, hey, but, you know, I've played that game like everybody else has played. And I'm still sitting here waiting for a deal to be done. And so, um, look, my my best my feeling on this is that media rights and expansion are going to happen rapid fire. It will be meteorites, then expansion. And that, in fact, is what the Pac-12 is telling San Diego State and others through intermediaries. So I think that part is, it's going to happen in rapid fire. But I just, I'm kind of dreading the idea that this conference could get to the conference tournament in March without a meteorites deal. If they don't have something in hand by that point, I think there's going to be some real questions about, are they dragging their feet? Is something not right here? I have felt like the sources within the universities and conference itself have tightened up in the last week or two. I'm taking that as a sign that the discussions are ramping up or the decisions are coming down the pipeline. So I'm eager, and I'm thinking, let's put a five-week timeline on this. I would like to see a deal done in principle at least. It doesn't have to be finalized, but let's like, who are the partners, and where will the games be? It, you know, beyond 2024, I would like to see that happen in the next five weeks.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's probably about right. I, I I thought that they were waiting for UCLA. And then once that the region's decision became final, which I believe was December 14th or 15th, probably 14th, um, that they would be able to get that they were in position then to wrap it up quickly, either right before Christmas or the first half of January. And that clearly wasn't the case. Uh Pac 12 is taking a little bit, uh maybe a little less urgency uh than I think they should. So we'll see. I, I to me, if my rough deadline is is selection Sunday, right? If selection Sunday comes and goes and there is no deal and there's no deal, like they're not on the brink of a deal, then uh then, you know, there's gonna be reason for folks to be concerned that they're not getting anything close to what they want. And uh, you know, it could at that point, you know, who knows what could happen.
1: Next question: Will the Pac-12 have the courage to go with Amazon Prime alone as their primary media provider? I'll go first on that one. I don't think so. I don't think that's where they're headed. Uh, you and I have talked to several athletic directors who say that the glow of ESPN's platforms are a big part of you know you know it's really attractive to the conference. A big part of what they want in the next media deal. Um, I you know the industry insiders that I talk with say that streaming's sweet spot may not come until 2027. So I don't think you can go all-in in 2024 or 2025. I think you're going to be too early to that space. You're going to miss too many viewers. And with a 12-team playoff, let's not ignore that ESPN plays a, uh, a huge role in the ranking of teams, in the branding of teams. They influence this in committee. The Pac-12 needs that on their side. So the blend for me is Amazon Prime uh on you know carrying all the Pac-12 Networks content, you know 38 football games, whatever that is, basketball, some Olympic sports. I think that's fine, but I think you still need to be on ESPN with, you know, your primary games, the yeah, ABC and ESPN and maybe CBS or Fox for a game or two here or there. Yeah, it needs to be spread out over
0: broadcast TV, uh, broadcast, cable, and, and streaming. I think, and th- my guess is that that's that's what they're hoping for, right? Because you you've got to thread that needle between visibility and and revenue and and you know various various platforms. My view on Amazon is the only re- way the Pac-12 should go all in with Amazon is if it is really all in, and there is a comprehensive uh, agreement uh, with across all branches of the universities, not just athletics. Uh, you know, food services, transportation, merchandise, uh, health care, IT serv- and cloud services, all that kind of thing. Unless they're going to do some kind of sweeping deal with, with Amazon, uh, then it they just need to have have that be part of their their sports broadcast package. Next, uh, we got. Why is Pac-12 Commissioner George Kliukov so quiet over major issues right now? Other podcasts are roasting him. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure which one, which podcast that listener is referring to. Uh, he certainly has been, for the most part, he has been pretty tight lipped since, um, what, since June 30th. And my view is, look, there's only two constituents that he cares about, his presidents and the people he's negotiating with. And I don't think either of those constituents want him out talking about there, where things are in the negotiations, that's just my view. Yeah, what do you think? I think
1: part of it is his personality. I don't think that he wants to be out front uh, like P.T. Barnum, and you know, and in selling stuff that when he doesn't have a lot to sell. But I also think you're right. I think there's this overall strategy here that we've seen from the Pac-12 CEO group that is, hey, we'll talk about things when we have something to talk about. Uh, he has emerged. He's popped his head up on this podcast. Popped his head up on Media Day and whatnot, but. I, I think when he has something to say, I think he will pop up. And I just think that's part of his style and also part of the overall strategy. Um, moving on, how do you grade the Pac-12 and Big 12 commissioners through the latest round of realignment? I'll go first there. Um, look, uh, I, it happened on George Kwiatkow's watch. So USC and UCLA leaving, that's in the win-loss column for him. I also think Brett Yormark may have jumped the gun in the Big 12 it looks like he took less money in exchange for stability. And I kind of it raised some eyebrows that that you know the distribution on the media rights front for the Big 12 members only 31.7 million per university from a media rights standpoint. The Pac-12 is telling me they're confident they're going to beat that number. I need to see it and I can't grade these entities until you know we have those figures, but right now uh, I think it's disappointing. You know, that that UCLA and USC, there wasn't more done proactively early in George Klyovkov's tenure. I think there was some things now in hindsight, you look back and say, should he have been in contact with them? Should he have been asking them? You know, are you happy? Should he have been aware of their displeasure and what the Big Ten was up to? I think those are all fair criticisms right now. But let's see the numbers, because if the numbers come in big for the Pac-12 and they monetize the Pac-12 networks in a way that surprises people, uh, I think you have to consider that a home run win for George Klyovkov. But let's see where the numbers fall.
0: Yeah, I, I think it, I, I thought all along that Pac-12 and Big 12 are basically about the same, you know, in the media rights sphere. Right. So Big 12's got thirty one point seven million. At least that's what was reported i you know we haven't seen for sure that they are ha- they have signed their grain of rights deal but uh presuming that that 31.7 per school per year is, is right you know Pac 30 31 32 33 it doesn't matter right none of that money is transformative none of it is it, nothing's going to put them in, in a competitive disadvantage if they get beyond above 35 uh you know high 30s then then for sure grand slam for the Pac12 i don't expect that i think it's going to be somewhere pretty close to the Big 12 and and they they that's you know for both conferences that would be a victory given what they've gone through
1: yeah and i think the wild card is you know what is the Pac12 doing with the Pac12 networks do they get it do they become the production arm for amazon and do they create this side hustle Using the networks, or do they sell the thing and reap a windfall? Like that is a big part of you know the number, and and I don't want to. I want an apples to apples comparison. Like you know, let's remove the production stuff. Are we going to be able to say, hey, the Pac-12 came in and this is their number, and you know? But I think we're going to get a sense of where they are and what kind of job Kliavkoff did in positioning them based on the numbers. Uh, moving on, give me your way too early football power rankings after signing day and the portal closing. Wilner, I'll let you go first. You don't have to go 1 to 12, but give me the uh, two or three teams you see at the top of the power rankings in Pac-12 football.
0: I am uh, I'm on the Husky train at this point. I think Washington's the team to beat and I think they've got a real good chance to make a serious run at the playoff to be to be in, involved, you know, like USC was down the last couple weeks. Uh, like a lot of lot of players coming back, starting with Michael Penix Jr. So I would put Washington at the top. Uh, certainly, uh, Oregon is going to be a contender. SC contender. Uh, you know, we'll see about Utah. I am, you know, Cam Rising is supposed to be ready for the season opener, but we don't know what Cam Rising we're going to get. I mean, coming off a major leg injury that doesn't necessarily mean just cuz he's playing that he's going to be playing at maximum efficiency. So, I'm still not quite sold on Utah cuz of his injury, not quite sold on Oregon State just because of the quarterback situation. Uh I certainly think that that uh Washington, uh USC and Oregon are are the three teams to beat right now.
1: As I look at it, look, I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit. Oregon's recruiting class surprised me. Dan Lanning on early signing day uh, had some wins that people didn't expect. But uh, I I think right now I'm going to say Utah is at the top of my power rankings until somebody knocks them out. I think USC is going to come back, and I think they're going to be a little better than they were a year ago. Does that result in wins? I don't know. Beyond that, I think Oregon and Oregon State are right in there, and so is Washington. I mean, it's obviously, you know, it's going to be packed at the top, and you're going to have a bottleneck, but I'll take Utah at the top right now, USC behind him, Oregon, Oregon State, and Washington in a fight for third place right now on my power rankings, but, um, you know, look, I, I think it's going to be a great season, and I wouldn't be surprised if any of those teams win it. Uh, how many wins is Michael Penix Jr. worth in a season? How about Bo Nix? Which quarterback is worth more to his respective team? As a listener, um, I think Penix Jr. is worth more to his team than anybody in the conference right now. And that includes Caleb Williams at USC, because I think USC is going to come back a little better. I I think Bo Nix is huge. Uh, you know, quarterbacks are obviously important at every university. But if we're looking for like who is the player that you can't afford to lose, it's Penix Jr. and it's Washington. How about you? I mean, a lot of that depends on the, who the backup is, right? Because if you've got a decent backup,
0: losing your starter doesn't hurt as much. Washington's backup uh, started for them, uh, Dylan Morris. You know, I I think I would I would grade him as a as a better backup right now than probably uh, what the other schools have. So even though Washington is hugely dependent on Penix and the guy is terrific, the fact that they've got uh, they've got a serviceable backup, I I don't know. I think it would be Caleb Williams. I, I think that guy does – he does everything for them because a lot of it's because of the, his play out outside the pocket. If you're saying who's worth the most to their team, how how big would the drop-off be without him? I don't know. I think USC's drop-off might be the biggest.
1: Well, we saw it in the Pac-12 championship game, but I'm we banking did. on USC being better next year, a better all-around team, but – Let's keep an eye on that. Obviously, quarterbacks matter in college football. Uh, Let's move on uh, to the next question. Go ahead. Okay.
0: So this is about the schedule. I love talking schedules. There has been talk of an eight-game schedule uh, with a non-conference game against the ACC. What if it goes the other way and the Pac-12 goes to a 10-game conference schedule? That would increase You know, more, that'd be more quality games for TV, uh, more ticket selling selling opportunities because you get rid of uh, a cupcake. There's more losses, but with the playoff, the the listener asked, you know, with the playoff expansion, the loss total doesn't mean as much. So could the conference, should the conference consider going to 10 league games?
1: I I love the outside the box thinking there. I like the thinking. I just don't think you're going to get consensus on that front. The more I talk with, Athletic directors. There's really a division on even going from nine to eight. I don't know if you if you try to go nine to 10, I think you're going to get the same division in the room. Uh, It does, on one hand, alleviate the pressure that is put on some of the schools to find those payday games in that third non-conference game. But also you're adding 10 losses like that to me jumps off the page. When I look at that question, you're adding 10 losses at a time when you're competing for playoff spots. I don't think that helps the brand. I don't think it helps you get two or three teams into the playoff in a given year. And for that reason, I think uh, they either stay at nine or move to eight. Yeah. And of course that would only work, right? If they would have to expand because they'd have to
0: get to to have 10 games, you'd have to have more than 10 teams in the league. So that would, that would mean at least 11 or 12, Schools. It, what's interesting about it is that Nick Saban, of all people, because we all think about, oh, SEC, you know, soft schedules, Alabama playing the Citadel in early November. But Nick Saban has been the leading proponent of t- stronger schedules and has even suggested that Power Five teams should only play Power Five opponents uh, because he thinks that that would, you know, be better value for the fans and better. You know, just better competition, and it's interesting. So that idea, in in as a concept, that is already out there, uh, courtesy of of Nick Saban. But I don't know that it's I don't know that it's practical, and certainly the coaches would probably oppose it. You know, because then you're talking about their bonus money based on win totals. Uh, So you probably get a lot of opposition from the coaches. But it's an interesting
1: interesting question, no matter what. Finally, uh, last question, is the Pac-12 better off ditching an out-of-conference cup g- game from the schedule? What do they have to lose? Wilner, go ahead.
0: Well, so I'm assuming that, you know, th- the question means they stick with nine-game conference schedule and the all three non-conference games are either against our five opponents or, you know, high-level uh, high level group of five, you know, I don't know. It depends how you just define cupcake is cupcake, you know, an FCS opponent, or is it even low level, uh, you know, low level FBS, right? I mean, some people might've said, well, uh, UCLA was playing three cupcakes last year, but, you know, South Alabama was, was pretty good. So I don't know that they do that. Uh, again, it's such a, school by school decision how you construct your your non-conference schedule you know colorado for instance they don't think cupcakes are good because you know you you don't the fans don't care so colorado's loaded up on their schedules they got what they got nebraska colorado state tcu this year right it makes it harder to 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 kind of polish your record but it's better for fans at the same time you know some schools don't think that 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 uh Playing all all quality opponents is is good. They want to have a uh, an easy win or two.
1: If you have more questions for us, uh, you can tweet at us. You know where to find us on Twitter at Wilner Hotline for John Wilner at John Canzano BFT for me. I'm John Canzano. Make sure that you subscribe to this podcast. Uh, share it with friends, family. Uh, we will be back with an all new episode uh, next week. We've got some big guests coming down the pipeline. I know we keep saying that, but. We've got some big guests. Trust me on that front. Wilner, anything, any parting words for you?
0: No, I mean, we love doing the the questions. So make sure you hit us up, uh, you know, where to find us. Thank you, everybody, for your continuing support.